Welcome to the Byline Times podcast. My name's Adrian Goldberg. The Byline Times telling you what the papers don't say and reporting it without fear or favour. This time, the bosses taking advantage of the pandemic to make their employees work harder for less. It's known as fire and rehire. And right now, it's rife. They have asked them if they'll accept the new terms conditions. If they say no or I'm undecided, they've been saying we give you five days to make a decision. If you decide that you don't want to accept it, then we will dismiss you immediately and we will give you your contractual notice. So lawfully, they're doing everything they need to do under the legislation. But of course, morally, it's absolutely an outrageous thing to be doing. Plus the long shadow of empire. We hear from writer Satnam Sangera about Britain's historical blind spot. It's really quite painful, you know. It involves a certain amount of racism, white supremacy, massacres and genocide. There's no getting over it, you know. And it's quite hard to face up to that when you're the nation that sees yourself as the one that defeated the racist Germans and abolished slavery. So it's a very challenging history. And not just history. According to Professor Kahindi Andrews, colonialism is still a living reality. The basic logic of empire is that black and brown life is disposable, can be exploited in order to benefit the West, essentially white supremacy. And if you take that logic and look at the world today, nothing's really changed. It just looks a bit different. All that coming up shortly. First, a reminder, though, that we don't dance to the tune of any media baron or corporate interest. The Byline Times can challenge the abuse of money and power and hold government to account because our funding comes from ordinary readers and listeners like you. You can help by taking out a subscription to our monthly paper, The Byline Times. It is a great read, honestly. And in buying it, you're helping to support our website, bylinetimes.com, and this podcast. A subscription costs just £36 a year. You can get more details on how to subscribe at bylinetimes.com. That's bylinetimes.com. And if you have already subscribed, thank you. Now, what unites British gas engineers, porters at Heartlands Hospital in Birmingham and cargo workers employed by BA at Heathrow Airport? Well, the answer is they've all gone on strike in recent months in protest to what unions have described as fire and rehire ultimatums issued by management. The idea of threatening staff with the sack if they don't accept new pay and conditions isn't new, but it does seem to have risen to prominence again during the pandemic. According to research by the TUC, as many as one in ten workers has been forced to reapply for their job on less advantageous terms since the first lockdown a year ago. I spoke to one hospital porter in Birmingham for this podcast. He didn't want to be identified, but told me his world has been turned upside down since a new roster was imposed on staff where he works at Heartlands Hospital. Instead of working the same regular shift every weekday, with Saturdays and Sundays off, he now has to work at different times of the day and night, sometimes at the weekends, and is often allowed only a single day off at a time. I spoke to Claire Breeze from the Unison Union, who is representing the Porters, and Tim Sharp from the TUC. First Claire, who talked me through the changes. Prior to the imposition of the rotor, the Porters themselves were all working fixed rotors. So some of them would work late, some of them would work early, some of them would work permanent nights. They were taken on for that role because of their caring needs. Or some people are morning people, some people are evening people. And on that basis, they took the contract of employment with the trust. 
the trust actually imposed it on another hospital called the Queen Elizabeth Hospital, which is part of University Hospitals of Birmingham Trust. It didn't go down very well at all with the porters there. Lots of the porters left. The porters that remain behind, they don't like the rotors. They've lost their home life. They've lost their social life. They don't have a working sleep pattern. They don't have an eating pattern. So there have been impacts on their health. So last year when they came to implement this rotor with the porters at Heartlands, they wanted to fight it with everything that they'd got because the QE porters had told them how bad it was. So instead of having fixed working hours and knowing exactly where you were from week to week, from month to month, the porters have had a rotor imposed, which means that some weeks they might have a Monday off and a Thursday off, or they might get two days together off. They might have a weekend off or they might not have a weekend off and they could be working at different times of the day, possibly mornings, possibly nights. And that is not in their control. That is at the discretion now of the trust. Yes, it's a compulsory rotor. So they will be working eight different shift patterns. So I think the main complaint is that they're just not having enough days off in between and the rotation of those shift patterns is just too fast. They haven't just imposed this, they've actually fired and rehired the staff. So they've got their imposition by coercing the staff and basically threatening the staff, if you don't take the rotor, we will dismiss you and we'll dismiss you immediately with your contractual notice. Now, I don't know many people working through a pandemic would be would relish the thought of being sacked during a pandemic when we know that there's no work, there's so many people unemployed. So they've they've fired and rehired. They've used tactics that I never imagined that I would see within the National Health Service. It's just been horrendous for them. And the workers have just felt that they've been backed into a corner and they've had no choice other than to come out fighting, which is why they've asked for strike action. So what they've done in order to break the strike, in my opinion, is they've actually given almost every one of our porters some form of a flexible working agreement. So this is what they've done. They've actually tried to break the strike by saying, "Okay, then we'll give you this shift and this shift if that helps you. However, you must come back in three months time and we'll review whether we're still happy to continue with that offer of a flexible working agreement. So these are the tactics that they use. Tim, I've spoken, as I've mentioned, to one hospital porter who didn't want to be identified because he fears reprisals from management and he says his world has been turned upside down by the imposition of this new roster. How common is this fire and rehire policy? It appears to have had a fresh lease of life since the start of the pandemic. I mean our polling shows that one in ten workers report having had terms and conditions reduced under, under fire and rehire since March. And it's not falling evenly across the, the workforce. It's far more prevalent amongst workers, amongst BME workers, young workers, those in working class occupations are far more likely to be subject to this sort of employer tactic than other workers. And so we have seen British Gas, uh, British Airways, and unions are telling us that in the hospitality sector, there appears to be a, a sort of concerted effort to level down terms and conditions in that sector. Long-standing members of staff on decent, secure contracts 
being re-employed on zero hours or short hours contracts. So that that move towards insecurity is is being sort of driven by this fire and hire approach, which is really worrying. Isn't it against the law? Employers in the UK have very strong rights in this area. Now they have to they have to stick to certain rules around notice periods. They have to make sure that they stick to the terms of the law in terms of fairness. If there's large numbers of workers affected, more than 20, then they have to go through collective consultation proposals. So there are a few hoops that employers do have to jump through. But for a a well-advised employer, there is very little restriction on what they, they can do in this regard. So, you know, it's really heartening to hear politicians from across the political spectrum condemn tactics like this and say, as we would say, there is no room for this sort of approach in modern Britain. But actually, we need to see government take action to make sure employers cannot just have such free licence to trim terms and conditions without engaging in proper dialogue with, with workers and with their unions. Yeah, we've seen Boris Johnson condemning the principle of fire and rehire in the context of British Airways. We've heard business ministers condemn it. Is there any sign of any legislation to prevent this happening? No, regretfully not. And I just can't understand it. I mean, we held our very first online strike rally last Thursday. It was a fabulous success. And John Ashworth, Shadow Health Secretary, he was one of our speakers, and he committed to take our dispute and the weaponising of fire and rehire to Parliament because it is just so unacceptable. And the difference with what the Trust have actually done regarding fire and rehire is very different to anything I have ever experienced with fire and rehire because Normally what they do, the employer will normally go into some form of consultation and then they will actually give notice to the staff and they'll work that they'll work through their contractual notice period. When their notice period comes to an end, they either leave of their own volition because they don't like what's on offer or they'll automatically move on to the new terms and conditions. Now, what this trust have done is the complete opposite of that. They've actually invited them to dismissal meetings. They have asked them if they'll accept the new terms and conditions. If they say no or I'm undecided, they've been saying we give you five days to make a decision. If you decide that you don't want to accept it, then we will dismiss you immediately and we will give you your contractual notice. So lawfully, they're doing everything they need to do under the legislation. But of course, morally, it's absolutely an outrageous thing to be doing. It's it's outrageous to be doing in any sector but to be doing it during a pandemic while our members are putting their lives on the line and their families' lives on the line, saving lives. It's not right because these workers have no life, Adrian, no life whatsoever. It's all work. There is an argument, isn't there, that working nights permanently is not good for your health. So perhaps sharing the pain, as it were, amongst the porters of night working is overall to the benefit of the health of the staff? There are arguments, the arguments that the Trust have used to say that some other staff would like a share of the enhanced pay for night work and for Saturday work and for Sunday work. However, I've yet to meet those people and we've got five and a half thousand members in that Trust and I have not heard one member come to me and say that they willingly want to work nights. They don't. There's not a willingness on behalf of most workers who want to work nights. 
Tim, elsewhere, the debate is rather different. It tends to be about companies saying we need to ask our workers to do something different than they're used to doing, possibly for less pay, because we're experiencing this terrible pandemic. And this is perhaps the only way that we can keep them on. So is there an argument that says it's better to be fired and rehired and keep your job than not have a job at all? Workers will undoubtedly, in almost all circumstances, want to keep their job. It's about how the situation is dealt with. What we say is employers faced with with difficult circumstances, and, and many will be at the moment, they should be talking to the workers. They should be negotiating with the union. In many cases, you know, there'll be established procedures in place. What is really unacceptable is trying to bypass those unions. And I think what we're also seeing is some opportunistic employers who are taking advantage of the fear and uncertainty that so many workers face at the moment to push through changes in their interests. And I think if you look at the big picture, we should be really worried about this. We should be really worried about rising insecurity and erosion of decent work. It's bad for the workers affected and we know that it's bad for the economy as well. We know there's a strong link between economic performance and decent work. Yet what we're seeing at the moment are too many employers taking advantage of the economic circumstances to try and drive through unacceptable changes. I mean, if we're looking at insecure work models, I mean, what really is important, what's going on within the health service, especially within this trust is the growing number of bank staff that are being taken on. This is an absolute abuse that's going on in this health trust. We've almost got as many bank workers in the portering department as we have contracted workers. They have no entitlement to annual leave. They have no entitlement to sick pay. We hear complaints that they can't meet hospital appointments, dental hospital appointments. They can't get to the doctor's appointments because if they do, they lose pay. If they refuse shifts, it's highly likely that they won't get another one. So they they are at the beck and call of the employer. And this has become an absolute abuse. Now, banks banks were introduced into the National Health Service to ensure that, that we're never short of staff. So there'll never be an impact on patient care. And that's not what they are being used for at the moment. They are being used as an alternative to contracted staff. It's a huge abuse that needs to be taken back into control because it's completely out of control. And you've got people there who have been waiting three years for a permanent contract. When we left the European Union, it was under the promise that this would, that the government would protect and enhance workers' rights. Indeed, we were, we were sort of promised that uh, specifically in the Queen's speech straight after the last election. We were told there would be an employment bill that would deal with a lot of the sort of problems around insecure working and so on that, that we face in this country. We've still to see that. Tim Sharp from the TUC, and before that, Claire Breeze from the Unison Union, representing hospital porters at Heartlands Hospital in Birmingham. Now, the University Hospitals Trust in Birmingham, which runs Heartlands, said that they had been consulting for a year before introducing the rota, and that they had agreed flexible working arrangements with 35 individuals and pay protection for a year, and had made, in their words, significant efforts to balance the views of the workforce with the needs of the patients. The Department for Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy told us, whilst we recognise the impact COVID-19 has had on businesses, using fire and rehire as a negotiating tactic is completely unacceptable. 
We expect companies to treat their employees fairly and employers must meet with affected employees or union representatives to discuss and agree changes to contracts. So strong words from the government. The question is, when will we see tough action? I'm Adrian Goldberg and you're listening to the Byline Times podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to our brilliant monthly paper, The Byline Times, which pays for our website and this podcast. Get more details at bylinetimes.com. Now, on this podcast, we talk about the influence of empire a lot. Check out writers like Jonathan Liss and Otto English, who've written brilliantly for the Byline Times about its long-term impact on the British psyche, especially with regard to Brexit. Byline Times editor Hardeep Matharu has written about how her parents, both migrants, voted leave. So we teamed her up for this week's podcast with the writer Satnam Sangera, whose new book, Empire Land, How Modern Britain is Shaped by Its Imperial Past is out now. I asked Satnam, the son of Indian parents who was born and raised in Wolverhampton, how much he knew about the empire as he was growing up. Well, almost nothing and probably less than you in that even when there were opportunities to tell us about empire, our teachers, it was almost like they went out of their ways to not tell us. So there were the dozens of Remembrance Day services we had where it was never mentioned that millions of imperial subjects had fought in both world wars and when we were taught about the great potato famine in ireland no one cared to illustrate it with a comparison to what was happening in india with similar famines and i think this is reflective of a general amnesia about empire in, in this country in that we don't see ourselves as the nation that built the greatest empire in human history we see ourselves as the country that won world war ii alone which is just factually untrue and i think amnesia is, is definitely the way we we treat empire. One of the expressions that amnesia is the fact that we don't understand why we have multiculturalism, you know? We have a multicultural society today is because we have had a multicultural empire. All the debates about multiculturalism fail to forget that the British host nation has a duty towards those people who came here to remember there's centuries-long relationships. There's a profound reason why we're here. And I think That's why the amnesia is a problem. It creates huge problems with racism and understanding who we are. We'll talk about the negatives of empire, and I think most thinking people would acknowledge that there are many of those. But you're also keen to focus on the positives of empire as well. For people who haven't read your book, what are they? Yeah, in terms of the modern legacies, things we live with, multiculturalism. So the reason Hardeep and I are here today is that some Brits invaded India in the 16th or 17th century. And then we have our incredible internationalism and we travel the world like no other nation as tourists and also as expats. And then you have, I argue in the book, there's a certain tradition of anti-racism in this country, which you can trace back to abolition, the abolition of slavery. And then lots of our language comes from empire, our food. But then there are some bad things. And I argue in the book that we have a particular kind of racism which can be traced back to 19th century empire. Also, we have this politics of exceptionalism, this idea we don't have to obey the rules like everyone else, which you see coming out in things like Brexit and our response to coronavirus. And then finally, I think we're in denial about the way in which we got a lot of our artifacts in our wonderful museums. Interesting that you talk about the duality of racism and anti-racism both being part of the legacy of empire. Yeah, it's, it's complex. 
And I think in the public conversation about empire, things are made incredibly basic. So there's a popular view that British empire was good, that to be proud to be British, you need to be proud of British imperial history. But it's 400 years of history. It was very complex. So when you say, people say, I'm proud of British history, what do you mean? Are you proud of abolition? Are you proud of slavery? Are you proud of the fact we sent 3 million Africans to America as slaves? Are you proud of Sadiq Khan? Are you proud of me? It kind of means, it's like saying you're proud of biology or jelly. It means nothing. (laughs) And Hardeep, we've spoken before on the podcast about how you see the, the long shadow of empire playing out through Brexit in particular. Yes, and we've talked about it before, haven't we, Adrian? One of the things I really like about what Satnam was saying, and he picks up in picks up on very early in his new book, is that a lot of the conversation at the moment is focused around these flashpoints of statues and institutions, culture wars, the anti-woke crusade, which is being waged by the government and, and other parties. And I think it becomes very binary and very politicized and weaponized. And within that, sort of any prospect of nuance and understanding the complexity of empire is very much getting lost because Satnam is absolutely right. It is it is extremely complex. You can't boil it down to statues and cultural wars. And he says it's, you know, the legacy of it is in my very being. And, and I have that too. My parents are from India and Kenya. And I I have written about this quite extensively how I saw their vote to leave the EU as, in part, a reflection of this sort of love-hate relationship that they have with their colonial roots. So my father, for instance, grew up in British Kenya. He witnessed some of the Mau Mau rebellion, which I'm sure if you ask anyone on the street, they probably won't know what that was. It was one of the most shocking episodes in British colonial history. He lived through something like that in Kenya. He remembers the colour bar. He remembers all sorts of negative aspects of discrimination there. But he really loved growing up in a colony that was British. He loved being able to read Time magazine and learn how to speak English. And he he loved the sense of order and method and education and manners that the British seemed to have. And it was really interesting, just before the Brexit vote, I was talking to another great uncle of mine, who was also who also grew up in British Kenya. And he, he also voted to leave the EU. And he was saying, well, in Kenya, we Sikhs, we were middle class. And of course, that was a reflection of this stratification that the British had created in Kenya, whereby the Indians were brought there, in the case of my family, to help build the railways from India. And they were, they were sort of given this middle class status above people who were actually born in Kenya living there, but below the British classes that were ruling them. And my great uncle felt very proud of this notion that they were very middle class. My father feels very proud. He feels very British. And part of that vote for Brexit, I think, he doesn't he doesn't identify with Europe. He doesn't feel European. And so there was this really strong allegiance to Britain, where British, you know, the mother country. But then there was also this notion that, you know, growing up, Adrian was very aware of the Jallianwala-Bagh massacre. My parents told Told me about that. My dad's told me about what was going on during the Mau Mau era in Kenya and the atrocities that took place part of empire and its colonies. And so they, there was an, also a notion when I spoke to my parents and really dug down into it that they also felt that because the British had done these things in their countries, that really the British state now should own allegiance 
to immigrants from those countries that have been colonized rather than perhaps European immigrants. But all of this is so complex, it's so nuanced. And I think that is something that is quite difficult to try to explore in sort of British society. You know, it can't be boiled down to the balance sheet approach of this was bad, this was good. It was all complex. It was all involved very different sets of considerations and contradictions. And for perhaps people like Satnam and myself, we still live those in our day-to-day lives. And I certainly do. You know, the contradiction of me knowing that my parents come from different countries which are ruled over by the British but also, feel, you know, I love, I've loved growing up in Britain. I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for the empire, though. So that is something that's, yeah, you can't resolve that easily. And I think a lot of what we're hearing now about discussions of history, it's how do we stop its weaponization and get to some of this nuance, which I think is a challenge. But I think the tide is starting to turn a bit on that. Yeah, I mean, my experience echoes that of Hardeeps. And I think it's because we're Sikhs. And Sikhs had a very complex relationship with empire. There was times where we were murdered, almost for sport, during the Anglo-Sikh wars, during Jalimwalabagh, where up to 900 Indians were murdered by General Dyer in Amritsar in 1919. But the other times, we were indulged by empire. We were made out to be this martial race. The whole perception of the Sikhs as being soldierly is because of British Empire. The British decided we were soldierly. They created handbooks explaining why we had the perfect physique for being soldiers. Not that you'd be able to tell that from my physique, Adrian. <laughs> but it was a weird combination of indulgence and subjugation. And I think that's continued into the post-war age where Sikhs have been indulged in some ways. We have the right to ride motorbikes without having to wear helmets. We can carry our daggers for religious purposes. But at the same time, we faced racial violence, employment discrimination, famously housing discrimination. We weren't allowed to buy certain houses or have council houses when we first arrived in this country. So I think it's it's a complex legacy. It's interesting what Hardeep says about her family history and an awareness of colonialism. My mum is Irish, but really my knowledge of Britain's role in Ireland has come from outside my family and outside of school as well, has essentially come through things that I've sought and discovered for myself. Certainly talk of the potato famine, for example, was never part of our family household discussion. I suspect more people are like you and I, Satnam, in that we came to understand these things later in life. At one level, there's an awareness and understanding that Britain had an empire. At another level, many of the details of it, and certainly the uncomfortable details of it, are hidden from view. Yeah, and I think there's several reasons for that. One is that it's a very complicated history. It's much easier to see yourselves as the country that won World War II. Six-year event, clear beginning, clear end, clear morality, you know, beating the evil Germans. Empire, complex morality, very complex events. And then there's the fact that, you know, we've never been invaded in the modern age. So empire has always been something that happened elsewhere. We haven't had a moment of reckoning like the French did after World War II, where you had to face up to what happened. So that's why I think it exists in our being, in in this mixture of amnesia and nostalgia. And then finally, of course, you've got the fact that it's really quite painful, you know. It involves a certain amount of racism, white supremacy, massacres, and genocide. There's no going over it, you know. 
And it's quite hard to face up to that when you're the nation that sees yourself as the one that defeated the racist Germans and abolished slavery. So it's a very challenging history. Except that for many people, those who have some knowledge of empire, it will go to the core of their identity as British people. This is why it's very difficult, isn't it, to to take the emotion out of it. They'll believe that Britain has been a force for good in the world, that it has been a mighty power, and they draw strength as individuals from that power. So to say to them, look, let's confront honestly the bad as well as the good that the British Empire was responsible for, is is to attack something deep inside many people. Yeah, people take it very personally. It undermines their sense of patriotism. But on top of that, you've got the fact that when you're talking about empire, you're talking about race, the most poisonous subject there is. You're talking about white people conquering and sometimes enslaving brown people. And then on top of that, when you've got someone like me, a brown person, or David Olisoga, a black person, telling the story, you're also challenging the racial hierarchy of the way the imperial story gets told. Because frankly, until now, it's been a certain white age man of a certain age telling the story on BBC Two at 6.30 whilst getting off a train in India. But now we've got the sons and daughters of the colonised telling the story. So that really gets to people because it challenges Everything challenges the hierarchy of empire, you know. British colonial history is the history of all of us who live here. It's not confined to those of us like Thutnam and myself who have sort of a more direct tie to countries of the empire and some of the consequences of that. It is the water we swim in, right? The British Empire is the water we swim in in Britain. Whether we know about it or not, it does shape sort of the psyche of of the country, I think. And we need to know more about it in a very fundamental way. And I think that doesn't necessarily take the form of of reparations. I don't think it takes the form of this sort of anti-woke war and a monitoring through freedom of speech, SARS, sort of what's going on in universities and what institutions are doing. But as we saw on last week's podcast, Adrian, with Corin Fowler, the historian who was leading the Colonial Countryside Project, you know, that is a very sort of local level engagement with history that I think a lot of people could appreciate. You know, her project involves taking school children to local buildings of interest, which have an imperial history, and just telling them the facts of that. And I think when something is a bit you know, more local, more direct, you can engage with it more. But I think this, what perhaps isn't going to be useful is that this notion that we already have too much of, that, you know, British colonial history, British empire, that was a long time ago. It's a person walking down the street, it's got nothing to do with me. You know, why do I need to know more about it? Why does it matter if it's taught in schools? Because it has shaped who we are as a nation. As Satnam was saying about, you know, from Brexit to the coronavirus crisis, the exceptionalism that we see it's there and that's why it matters. Satnam, there are those who argue for reparations for the victims of empire. What do you think of that? I don't, I think that's too soon to be talking about that because we haven't even learned to talk about empire, you know. We haven't even as a country faced up to the fact that we had an empire, you know. So how are we going to go from that to talking about the things that went wrong to reparations. I think it's too far ahead. I mean, I met an entrepreneur the other day, a British entrepreneur who said, a black British entrepreneur, and he said, no, we shouldn't talk about reparations for slavery. We should just put money into 
black businesses which don't attract the same amount of venture capital as white businesses. And I like that idea. The problem with reparations is that you create the idea that the people around now are somehow to blame for what happened four or 500 years ago. And I think that is too much for British people to handle, really. Satnam Sanghera, author of Empire Land, with Byline Times editor Hadeep Matharu. For Kahindi Andrews, professor of black studies at Birmingham City University and author of The New Age of Empire, the point is to recognise that whilst imperialism might have shape-shifted, it's never really gone away. The whole point of the new age of empire is this isn't history. I mean, there's a historical element to this, right, where we kind of trace back uh, genocide, slavery and colonialism were really important to building what we have today. But that doesn't end, right? The basic logic of empire is that black and brown life is disposable, can be exploited in order to benefit the West, essentially white supremacy. And if you take that logic and look at the world today, nothing's really changed. It just looks a bit different. When you say nothing's really changed, isn't that an exaggeration in the sense that the genocide that you refer to of Native Americans, the slavery of black Africans, aren't things that are present today? Yeah, okay. So obviously things have changed, So there's been, but it hasn't got any better. I think that's the key, I'd say. And just think about nine million people die every year because of hunger. Almost all of them are black and brown. So even if you look at the violence, even though there's not direct violence and not direct genocide, nine million people die. And they don't just die accidentally. They die because of the wealth that's been exploited from them and is here. So those deaths are totally preventable and they're caused by the success we have. So that basic logic is there. And the result's the same, right? Whether you die through slavery or die through genocide or die through disease or die through hunger, the outcome is exactly the same. And you point the finger at major institutions in the world today, like the World Bank, like the IMF, explain how they impact upon people in the developing world. Yeah, so, I mean, really, after the Second World War, this is when you have the new age of empire, when you know, these, like, Britain can't keep maintaining this massive empire, France can't keep, the, the violence can't hold, people are rebelling, so they, there's a transition. And there's a, really a, quite a, a, start, a big transition from European empires, and it goes to America. America's kind of the place that becomes a new center of empire and creates these institutions, the World Bank, the World Trade Organization, IMF, International, International Monetary Fund, all these places. And what they essentially do is create a financial regime where they will lend money to developing countries, have really strong strings attached to that money. So say, you know, we're complaining about austerity now, we're complaining about privatization. All these things happened for the last 50 years in the developing world. And what that is a way, that's a way to continue extracting the resources and the labor, but without the necessary violence. So if you go to go to most parts of Africa and say IMF World Bank, there's a hatred for those institutions, but a very similar hatred where it would have been to Britain or France in the colonial period. And you believe this is underpinned by a kind of structural racism that goes right back to the Enlightenment, the age at which the West, we are told, opened up to learning and new understanding. Well, I mean, it's ironic that you'd think that, but then, you know, what's the science is supposed to give you rational, better, progressive ways of understanding the world, but white supremacy becomes like, actually gets worse in the Enlightenment, because previously it was religious explanations, but the Enlightenment, that great age of reason, that's where you get the justification that I'm not a human being, that I'm actually in my genetics, I'm not a human being. 
racial science until prior to the Second World War was basically just accepted as science. And these were accepted, accepted things. And so what happens is that justifies the exploitation of black and brown. And you still have the same justification today, again, even though it looks slightly different. So think about the UN, for example, which is, I guess, the most progressive of these institutions, which looks at global inequality, but <laughs> never talks about race. But if you actually look at global inequality, Africa is the poorest part of the, of the world, sub-Saharan Africa, the place where white people live are the richest, right? And then you have this kind of hierarchy in between. The global economy is, is literally white supremacy. And then we have a, a body that talks about global inequality and never talks about race. I mean, that's, that's, that's the problem, right? That we don't even acknowledge what's really blatantly in front of our eyes. And yet there is within the West a lively discourse, an ongoing discussion about racism, isn't there? I mean, it's almost never absent. Yeah, but do we, though? I guess that's the problem. And I think, you know, the last summer, Black Lives Matter summer, we had lots of discussions about race. I've been involved in lots of these discussions. I'm, so, I'm actually starting to think they make it worse, not better. <laughs> because the, way, well, the trivial nature we have of these conversations, I've been involved in at least six mainstream conversations. Is Britain racist? I mean, of course Britain is racist. Now, what kind of a question is that? We could, we're actually debating whether it's racist. and that, It's not helpful. And I actually think the way we talk about race is actually harmful because it trivializes it and misses the point. Well, go on then. Tell me how we should talk about race. Well, we should start from the accepting that Britain is racist. <laughs> of course it is. Like, I can give you any statistic today that will tell you deeply problematic, but also, again, historically, and then if you look globally. So let's start with the assumption that, yes, the society is racist, it's producing racially unequal ideas. And then you have to say, well, well how, then we have to actually change how we engage with the world. This is That's what racism is about. Racism is a matter of life and death. It's about how do we do the economy differently. That's what we should be saying. What we should be centering is those 9 million people who die from hunger. But we never actually bring them into conversations about racism. We had this as like a separate conversation about charity, etc., etc. But that should be the focus. How do you stop 9 million people dying? That, if I was going to say, what's the one question, you should ask that question. And then that gives you, a, that allows you to then talk about economy, allows you to talk about unfair trade practices, allows you to talk about anti-black racism. That's kind of, that's the conversation we should be having. One of the most challenging aspects of your book is the references to allyship, because there are many well-meaning white people, myself included, who might think these are important things that we need to discuss and that we need to address. But you seem to reject the idea of allyship with well-meaning white people. Uh, no, honestly, I don't mean to. That's not the point here. Allies is not our best. <laughs> but you do, though. You, I mean, you specifically, you specifically address the issue of allyship and kind of say that's not the way ahead. Yeah, no, I think that's the point I'm, I'd make is that allyship isn't the solution and allyship isn't the point. And if we're saying, look, how do we get well meaning white people to, to come on board? It's a missed conversation because actually that's not what we should be looking at. We should be saying, how do we fix the economy? And I've talked a lot about globally, but also if you look just locally, you can see huge inequalities. How do we fix that? Too much of our conversations assume that consensus is the way forward, assume that there's a middle ground here. No, that is not it. We should be uncomfortable. We should be asking difficult questions. Um, and that allyship thing is how do we make people comfortable with the debate? And as soon as people are comfortable, then we're not having a reasonable conversation. <laughs> but the concept of white people, though, is in itself a little bit problematic, isn't it? I know we're maybe going a little bit off topic here, but I'm a descendant on one side 
of Jews who at different times in history have been amongst the most oppressed people in the world, amongst the most oppressed people, and on the other side of white Irish people who have also been historically oppressed. So isn't there a sense in which there is a common ground between many white people and many people of African heritage whose forebears were sold into slavery? Well, there's certainly common ground between many people across the, across the board, but whiteness is, and I think whiteness rather than white people is probably the best way to think about it. And whiteness is has always been conditional. So largely in terms of that class, who has white privilege. If you think about the Irish have fallen out, certainly have fallen out of whiteness, Jewish people in and out of whiteness all the time. Um, but if we're saying today, and if we're looking at this realistically, that that's not the case anymore, right? There is this benefit of whiteness which accrues uh, to all of those in the West. And actually, one of the this conversations, that, the difficult conversation that leads for us is, that applies to me as well, right? I'm a professor at a university. I make more money than, I don't know, 98% of the whole entire world. I benefit from everything I just mentioned. This is the big problem for, for, for us now is that we're in it now. And we, black people, can equally be guilty of whiteness as anybody else, right? So I just, when you take whiteness, it's not white people. When I say something wrong with white people, saying whiteness and white supremacy and the idea that it's okay for us to live in a world that exploits and to benefit from it, that's the problem. And that isn't just a problem for, for people who have white skin. So to move forward from this situation in which these people are suffering great inequality, where do we go? What is the route out of that? That's the tricky part. And honestly, the book doesn't even try to answer that question. In many ways, the, the book is a it's a prequel to my other book. I just uh, Back to Black, Retelling Black Radicalism for the 21st Century, which is far more positive. And I wouldn't want people to think the book's pessimistic because it's really not kind of ends a bit like it ends. And it's supposed to end in a way which makes you uncomfortable. But the first step is really to embrace that uncomfort, to understand the scale of the change that's necessary. And then we need to really radically rethink what the economy is. And that is a proper rebalancing where we're not justifying the exploitation of Africa. We're not justifying this place in Asia. Wealth is a big thing, right? There's a big imbalance. Is there so much wealth here that we always debate about what to do with it? But that wealth kind of needs to be shared globally. So we have to be thinking about those issues. But the first, the first thing to do is to understand the scale of the problem. So as much as anything, it seems to me your analysis is about class as well as race. Black people are the the victims, as it were, of the system that you describe. But this is an economy that weighs down on those black people. The thing here is that there's you can't really, class and race are totally intertwined, right? So it's not coincidental that Africa is the poorest continent on the planet. It's not coincidental that in the UK, black people are the poorest people in the UK by wealth. Those things aren't coincidental, right? So it is certainly about the economy. But when we think about the economy and we think about class, we should always be thinking about class as it combines to race. There's no, that's one of the big arguments in the book cannot separate class. In fact, what we think about as class in the West is heavily based on that racial exploitation as well. But certainly it is about saying, how do we provide an economy which is fair for, for everybody? And the other thing which I'd say is lots of white people lose out from, from this system as well. It's not just lack of brown people who lose out. An equal economy would be better for everybody. Professor Kahindi Andrews there, author of The New Age of Empire. I'm Adrian Goldberg and I hope you've enjoyed listening to this episode of the Byline Times podcast as much as I have making it. If you did, then please think about taking out a subscription to the Byline Times. It only costs £36 a year. For that, you get our great monthly paper. You also help to fund this podcast as well as our wonderful website, bylinetimes.com. And that's where you'll find more details on how to subscribe. 
bylinetimes.com. See you next week.